Hey, thank you for taking time to watch this video message. Our prayer for you is that God would use this message in a profound way to impact your life. If you're somebody that's had your life impacted by the ministry here at Crosspoint, we would love for you to share your story with us. Simply send us an email at mystory@crosspointcity.com and let us know about what God has done in your heart. And lastly, if you need more information about the ministry here at Crosspoint, simply go to crosspointcity.com and you can find everything listed there. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, I hope you guys are doing well this morning. Man, I'm always honored and and it's a privilege to come up here and speak on Sundays. And and when James asked me and said, hey, would you be willing to teach on February 1st in our Daddy Issues series, my first thought was, well... I don't know if you know this, but I'm not a dad yet. And, and man, right away the enemy just kind of whispered in our ear, you're not going to know what to say. They're not going to want to listen because you're not there yet. And, and, man, God just gave me comfort to know that what we've been doing this whole series is clinging to the fact that we're looking at our Heavenly Father who is perfect to show us how to be fathers because none of us are. And so all I'm clinging to this morning is God's word and what he says about being a dad. And, and I know that's more than enough. And so I'm excited to be here this morning. And and as we talk about a gracious father, we're going to be looking kind of the opposite direction today. The other dad that we're looking at is the do better dad. The do better dad is the dad that always wants more, always wants just a little bit more in order for you to, uh, to get his love and grace, acceptance and approval. And, And some of you in the room, as soon as I say do better dad, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. When I grew up, I grew up in a really small town in Ohio, um, and, and I played sports almost all that you can imagine. Football was the one I stuck with all the way through my high school career, but, but here was the thing about that. I grew up in a small town where it was really important that you did really well at sports because that was important to the whole town, but not just that. Because it was a small town, a lot of generations lived there, and so you had uncles and your dad and you had grandpas even and cousins that all played these same sports at the same school that you played at. And so it was even more important if that was the case for you to do better and to carry on the legacy and to live up if that was the case. And that was the case for me. Uh, My dad was a standout varsity football player. I had uncles that were the same way, one that was a state champion swimmer or, or went to state. I don't know, maybe I just gave him more credit than he was due, but He was really good at swimming and had cousins that were successful athletically. And so I was walking into the same thing that a lot of the guys around me that I was graduating with were walking into. But man, as I started and James told me what we were talking about this morning, as I started to just think about it, I can close my eyes and see the faces of these guys and point out all the do better dads. Man, some of these guys that I played with were phenomenal athletes, did incredible things on the field, but their dads were never satisfied. Man, they were, they scored five touchdowns. They fumbled the ball once. That was all their dad would talk about when he saw him after the game. They hit three home runs and it was all about that strikeout they had. The dad just always wanted more, was never satisfied with the effort that they gave. I mean, I can, I can close my eyes and remember being on a baseball team with this kid. And this kid's dad was one of the prime examples of a do better dad. And I can remember him and he was great. I can remember his dad berating him from the center field fence in front of everybody over missing a a fly ball. I mean, just berating him because he didn't do good enough. And after the game, I don't care how many times you hit the ball. I don't care how many catches you got. You dropped it, you know. It was never enough. And so for me, like I said, I was walking what should have been that same situation. Like I said, I was supposed to carry on kind of my 
family's legacy of great athletics. And so I'm just going to be honest with you. I played football from fourth grade till 12th grade. Fourth through sixth grade, I played. I even started at quarterback, um, led my team to the Pee Wee Super Bowl. Uh, middle school, played some more. And then this thing called a growth spurt happened for like 90% of the guys I knew. And I was the 10% that it didn't quite work out for. And so then I moved into JV and varsity football and I started a total of zero JV and varsity football games. Um, I played enough quarters to get my letter, but when I say played enough, I mean like the game was like 70 to three, we were winning. So it was like, now it's time for you to go in. Like who hasn't water boy, any, you know, it was that kind of deal for me. And I loved it. I mean, I, I, here was the thing. I won the Archie Griffin sportsmanship award at my high school, my senior year. Here's what that means. It means that I, with a smile on my face, let all the kids that hit their growth spurt beat me up all week in practice to get better. And that I was the best guy at cheering in full pads on Friday nights. Like I put on the pads, I cheered really loud. And that was, that was me. That was my high school athletic experience. They did make a movie about me. Um, you may not know that, but my last home game, my senior year, I came in at the end of the game and had back-to-back sacks. They called it Rudy because I didn't want that kind of press. I don't really want people to think anything more of me than what they should have. So, but other than that, that's pretty much all I have to speak of for my high school athletic career. But here was the thing. As I looked at these guys that I was in school with and that were phenomenal standout athletes, some of them went on to play college athletics. Their dads were always, no, you should have done better. I, there was never enough. But here was my experience. I didn't perform. I didn't even play all that much. My dad would always say things like, I'm proud of you proud of how hard you work, proud of you going to practice every week, keep it up, don't quit, don't give up, I love you, I, those are the things that I heard, and I didn't, that was, that was the thing I heard whether I went in the game and got a sack at the end of the game, or whether I didn't play a minute, and, and I know that some of you didn't have that experience, you experienced the do better dad, you either are still under that, or you knew do better dads, or, or even hopefully not the case, but you're in this room, and and you are the do better dad. Your kids can never do quite enough to earn your acceptance and your approval. And, and, and let me just tell you what we're gonna see today. The do better dad has the ability to suck the life out of his kids, to completely take the wind out of their sails and their desire to do anything. You know, the dad that, it, like I said, is 20 points wasn't enough. It should have been 30 if you made the free throws. If you would have studied more, you would have gotten the A. If you work for my company, you'd be making more money right now. That do better dad that puts constant pressure. And what we're gonna see this morning is that the God that we serve, God our father is the complete opposite of that. God our father is the complete opposite of that. Our father is a God of grace. And so this morning, what we're gonna do is, first of all, if that's the case, then what does God's grace look like? What is Grace, Because if we're going to understand our father of grace and we're going to hopefully let that change some of our lives or free us up from the image we have of God our father because of the do better dad, then we need to understand his grace because grace is one of those things we sang about it in the first two songs that we just sang. Grace is a word that we can use here in church and, and it's a powerful, overwhelming, impactful word when we say God's grace. But if we don't really know what it is, we can lose that meaning and just be saying Words. So when we talk about God's grace, what are we talking about? I thought a really good spot to stop um, when I was studying. Paul Enns writes in the Moody Theological Handbook, grace may be defined as unmerited or undeserving favor of God to those who are under condemnation. 
Grace's unmerited, undeserved favor to those who are under condemnation. And as we go further into looking at grace, the other thing I want to make sure we do is understand what grace and mercy are. Because they're two different things that are pretty close to each other. But I really want us to understand what we're talking about this morning when we talk about grace. And so the best way as I was studying, I saw this example and I thought it was just great. So I'm going to steal it is this. So grace and mercy. If you're driving a clunker 65 miles an hour through a 25 mile an hour school zone and you get pulled over and get a ticket, here's what mercy is. You go to your court date and the judge does nothing. No penalty, no punishment, no points, no tickets, no driving class, no fine, nothing. That's mercy. Mercy is a punishment that you deserve that you don't get. That's what mercy is. Now here's what grace is. Grace is that same judge taking you out in the parking lot and giving you the keys to a brand new car. That's grace. That's unmerited, undeserved favor poured out on somebody that's under condemnation. You broke the law, you deserved a punishment, you didn't get that, but not only that, you got unmerited, undeserved favor. That's what grace is. And there's really no better place in the Bible to define God's grace and his mercy than Ephesians 2. And so we're going to stop in Ephesians 2 together just for a couple of minutes and and really let God speak to us about what his grace and mercy is. So Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, it says this, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and were among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 is what brings us in and lets us know that we are under condemnation and we are unmerited and undeserving. That's what defines it for us. When you read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, what it lets us know is that you and I, because we're born into sin, because of Adam choosing sin, we're not just neutral to God. We're not just like kind of bad people, kind of good people that need a little help. Like we are undeserving, unmerited, under condemnation because what Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says is we are children of wrath, sons of disobedience, following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. We're not neutral to God. We are enemies of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, it says. Not just we are kind of bad people that need help. We are dead because of our sin. We have no ability to reach out to God and we have no desire to based on Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We are enemies of God. So we are all under that condemnation. We are all undeserving and unmerited of anything from God. But that's why I love verse 4 and the first two words are my favorite two words in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So what Ephesians 4 and verse 5 lets us know, it puts on display what mercy and grace are. Now here's what mercy is. Like I said, mercy is something, it's a punishment that we deserve that we don't get. So here's how we look at and can define mercy. The cross is where we see mercy. The cross represents a punishment that you and I deserved. We deserved death. We deserve separation from God. We deserved the wrath of God being poured out on us for our sins. Those are all things that happened to Jesus on the cross. So mercy is represented in the cross. Because we deserve that punishment, and if we accept the free gift of salvation that God gives us, that's mercy. And here's what grace is. 
Grace is Jesus Christ. The full expression of God's grace for us is Jesus Christ. He is how we define and see on display what grace really is. Because mercy is just the fact that we didn't get a punishment we deserved. Grace is this unmerited, undeserved favor. And so if you keep reading in Ephesians, here's how we know that's true. Verse six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So grace for us, the full expression of us understanding and seeing God's grace is Jesus Christ. Mercy happened at the cross. Grace was the gift of Jesus Christ coming, paying for our sins so that we could be raised up with him, it says, so that we could be sons and daughters of God. We could be adopted into his family. We could be poured out on for all of eternity, the immeasurable riches of God's grace. Jesus Christ is the expression of God's grace to us. And so if that's the case, then this morning, and and I want to make sure that we define that really well in Scripture. So Romans 5.15 says this, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many men died through one man's trespass, which that's talking about Adam there, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, and glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John 1, 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So it is very evident in Scripture to us that this is the fact, this is the truth, that Jesus is the expression of God's grace. So if that's the case, then what can we learn from that? In this series, as we're talking to fathers... As we're trying to address the do better, dad, what can we learn from Jesus being the expression of God's grace? Well, here's the first thing we see. God's grace is unchanging. God's grace is unchanging. It is the same. Last week we learned that God is immutable, meaning we read a verse, the Lord your God does not change. In Hebrews it says God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If that is true, which we know it is, then that means God, because he is grace, it means it's always been the same. It's always been full. It's never gone up or down. He's never been more satisfied or less satisfied or had more grace or less grace. He never changes, so his grace has never changed. And because his grace has never changed, that means the way he expresses grace to us never changed. And so here's what we can see because of that. Genesis 6, 8 says this, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Exodus thirty three seventeen. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that has spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And then Jesus says in John fourteen six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the, bo- the Father but through me. So, so here's the thing. If we know that to be true, then here's what happens. Because God's grace is always the same and unchanging, when you go back and you look at men like Noah and Moses and Abraham and men that's, that found grace in God's eyes, what they were looking forward to and trusting in is the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
They were believing in the fact that God was going to pour out his grace on them, that when God said he started from Adam's sin to make a way for us to come back to him, that it would be Jesus on the cross like he said. They had to trust in that grace. For you and I, now in the New Testament, what we look back to is the cross. What we look back to is the full expression of God's grace on the cross, Jesus Christ. We now get to experience a relationship with God because of it being fulfilled. And those men had to look forward and trust that God was the same then as he is now. And that the expression of his grace for us would be the same expression of grace for them. And it is because like we read in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one, no one in the Old Testament, no one in the New Testament, nobody comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus has always been the expression of God's grace. And what that shows us is his grace is unchanging. His love and acceptance of us and approval, it's unrelenting. It never changes. And because of that, because we know that his grace is unchanging, because we can see that truth here in scripture, here's what we know. God accepts us, God loves us, and God's grace is the same for us on our absolute best and our absolute worst days. What that means is it never changes. Whether we do the best we ever could or we are at our absolute worst, his grace is the same. It is completely full and completely poured out on us because of Jesus Christ. His grace is unchanging. And here's the thing, that's a huge point of difference for the do better dad and for God our father of grace. That's a huge point of difference. See, the do better dad does this. He takes his acceptance and his approval and he makes it a reward that his kids have to try and reach. He makes it a reward that his kids have to try and constantly earn and get closer to. But but what happens is the do better dad, whether he's well-intentioned or not, he always hangs it just out of the reach of his kids. It's always the carrot that's just a little too far to grab. The do-better dad takes his acceptance, his love, his approval, and he makes it a reward that his kids have to try and work to earn. Like I said earlier, it's the dad that you played a great game, but if you'd have made those free throws, it would have been a better game. You would have gotten an A if you would have studied like I told you to. You would make more money if you would have worked for my company. If you would be raising your kids like I raised you, they would be better off right now. See, the do-better dad, what he does, he takes his acceptance and his approval and his love and his grace and he hides it behind a wall. And that wall is a mistake or a failure or a perceived wrong decision. And he puts that wall up and what he does is he says that, well, you're the one that put the wall up. If you wouldn't have made that mistake or if you wouldn't have failed in that way or if you wouldn't have made a decision I didn't agree with, my acceptance and approval would be here for you to have. But it's not. You need to do better next time. Maybe next time, if you do better, then I can be proud of you. Then I can say you did a good job. See, that's what the do better dad does for us. And like I said, that absolutely sucks the life out of your kids. It absolutely drains the life from their bones when they don't feel like they will ever reach your acceptance and approval as the reward you're dangling it out to be. I was talking with James um, 
as we were getting ready for this message and I was just getting his thoughts on some things and James has been in student ministry for a long time, a lot longer than I have before he was doing this. And and so he was telling me about a particular instance where a dad came to him and wanted James to meet with his son because his son just wasn't living up to his potential. He wasn't achieving, he wasn't doing good enough. And he just, he felt like if he met with James, James could figure out what the deal was. And so James sits down with his kid and the long story short is this, that kid was so dejected because his dad never gave him any approval. Never, it was always do better, do better, do more, do more. And that kid just gave up. He told, he told James, I, I'll never get there. So why try? I'll never get my dad to approve of me or to say I've done a good job. So why even try? That's what the do better dad does. He sucks the life from his kids by trying to get them to reach for his approval and acceptance and grace and love like it's a reward. But here's where the difference is. Here's where God, our father of grace is so much different. Acceptance is the fuel of our lives, not the reward we are living for. God, our father of grace, what he does is he pours out his acceptance and his love and his approval and his grace on us. When we don't deserve it, when it's unmerited, he pours it out all over us and it becomes the fuel for our lives, not the reward that we're living for. And here's how I know that's true. You go to scripture and and scripture speaks to this. Second Corinthians nine verse eight says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then Acts 11, 23 says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You see, those two verses let us know that the grace of God fueled a desire to want to do better, to want to do what's right, to want to abound in every good work. That acceptance, that approval, that grace made them want to abound in every good work, want to remain faithful to the Lord and what he was calling them to, not feel like they had to or they never could. And Paul illustrates this so well for us in Philippians 3. Paul writes a good chunk of the New Testament letters to the church. Paul is a man who was a Jew of Jews. When the early church was getting started and Christianity was getting off the ground, Paul was the guy that was holding the coats for other men that were murdering Christians at the time. He was vehemently opposed to God and and the movement of Christians. And God comes to him one day, knocks him off his horse, says, Paul, you're gonna be different. You're gonna do what I tell you to from now on. And Paul lives the rest of his life pursuing this. Here's the reward. If you wanna know what the reward is, it's not acceptance and approval. The reward is a relationship. Philippians 3 says this, seven and eight. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered all, or suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul understands that the reward of our lives, if we are truly living them the way that God intends is a relationship with him, knowing him, knowing Christ. That's the reward. Philippians 3.14, because of that, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
If you read Paul's writing throughout the New Testament, there's something you will hear over and over and over again, and it's this. It's the word grace. Paul understands that God's grace in his life is something he did not deserve. He talks all the time about how he's the chief of sinners, how he is undeserving of what he's got. But what Paul does, because he talks about grace so much, he reminds himself that it is the fuel of his life. It is the fuel that pushes him towards wanting a relationship with God, wanting to please him, wanting to live a life that honors and glorifies God, wanting to do better every day to be more like Christ. Because the acceptance and the approval that he gets from God is already his fully. He doesn't have to work to earn it. He can be at his best and his worst and God still loves him the same, which gets him moving towards the fact that he wants to honor God as father. He wants to press towards the mark, the high calling, the prize of walking and living a life for Christ. That's what acceptance and approval is and does. That's what grace does. It fuels us towards the reward, which is a relationship. Dad's in the room, just let me tell you. If you will use your acceptance and your approval and your grace and your love in your kids' lives as fuel, they will begin to pursue the reward of a relationship with you. They will begin to pursue the reward of wanting to do better, of wanting to honor you, of wanting to live a life that would please you because they know they don't have to work hard for you to accept them. And what you'll do more importantly, it's not just about you. What you will do more importantly is you will let them know that that's who God is. That when God lavishes and pours out grace on their life, when he accepts and approves them fully at their best and worst, that the reward that they're living for is a relationship with him. We've seen that all this series and it's just the truth. Dad, you will shape your child's view of God. Man, and we cannot let our kids miss that God is a God of grace. We cannot let our kids miss that God loves and approves of us no matter what. We can't do it. Because without that grace and acceptance and approval, without them knowing that God has that for them and feeling that, it will not fuel their lives towards a relationship with him. What it'll do is make them think that God's the same way and that he holds his acceptance and approval of them behind a wall of them trying to do better. And we are talking about the God of the universe who is holy and perfect. Your kids will never measure up. Neither will you and I. If you think your kids are striving and feel dejected because they don't think they can measure up to your standards, think about how they'll feel if they look at God's standards and see him the same way. They won't even get out of the starting block. There's no way we'll ever measure up to that. We need God's acceptance and approval to fuel us towards the relationship. And it's the same thing for you and your kids. You put that on display. So God's grace for us is unchanging, but here's the other thing we know. God's grace is unending. God's grace for us has no bounds. See, you and I are measurable. You and I, we can measure things and see and quantify things in our lives. We cannot do that with God. There is nothing about God that we could ever wrap our minds or our arms around. When we feel like we understand something about him, just know there's that much more that we will never truly understand. He is God. That's a good thing. But here's the thing. God's grace, it cannot be measured. Romans 5 verse 20 says this. It's going to be up on the screen. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... 
grace abounded all the more. So that verse is letting us know. When we look at the law, the law just lets us know we're falling short. The law does a good enough job of letting us know that we don't measure up. And where the law is, more sin comes. And what the Bible says right here, what Paul's writing is, where sin is, grace abounds that much more. Meaning no matter what, on your very worst day and your very worst sin, grace is far beyond that. It cannot be measured. Our sin can be measured. God's grace can't. It abounds more than anything. It is unending. God's grace is unending toward us. Now, I always want to caution when we talk about God's grace to make sure we make this point. God's grace is not a freedom to sin. Paul talks about that in Romans. He says, do, do, does God's grace abound so that I can continue in sin? By no means. Absolutely not. God's grace is not a freedom to sin. God's grace is a freedom from sin so that we can continue to pursue a relationship with him. It's the same for you, dads. Your grace towards your kids is not a freedom for them to sin. It's not, a condom, it's not you condoning their sin. Your grace and your love and your acceptance and your approval is what gives them the freedom from the times that they make mistakes, they fall short, they don't do well enough to continue moving forward, to continue pursuing a relationship, ultimately to continue following after God. Grace doesn't give us freedom to sin, it gives us freedom from sin. And here's the thing, grace, sometimes it's very graceful to give your kids consequences and punishment. Grace is not the absence of discipline or absence of consequence. That can be very graceful to your kids to let them experience those things. But we've talked about this during this series. Discipline should be grace-centered, and grace-centered discipline means it restores your children. It doesn't tear them down. It sets them back up to continue moving forward. Even when they don't deserve it, even when they fail and fall short, it says it doesn't matter. I still love you completely. Go forward. My acceptance of you doesn't rise and fall on how well or not well you do. My acceptance, my approval, my love for you is always constant. And because God's always that way, he wants that to be the case for us. And dads, we will never, you will never, and and when I get to experience that one day, we will never be able to fully give grace. Only God can do that. But if you will lavish it on your kids to the best of your ability, if you will spend every day asking God to abound grace on your account, which he already does, so that you can abound grace on your kids' account, what it's going to do is allow them to experience God's grace when you fall short. When you don't measure up, when you don't do well enough. You don't have to be the do-better dad because God, our Father in heaven, is not the do-better dad. Man, there's no story in scripture that, that really paints this picture any better. And this is a parable, Jesus speaking, there's a parable of the prodigal son. Man, that just puts this all on display. Prodigal son, if you don't know the story or if you do, a young, the younger son of two comes to his father and says, dad, give me my inheritance. Um, what that was saying to his dad is you're dead to me. I don't wanna live with you anymore. I don't wanna live under your rules, your roof. Just give me what's mine and I'm gonna leave. The dad in grace and love gives it to his son. The son goes out, spoils it across the world, just lives up for everything that he can, and he ends up spending and blowing through all of his inheritance. He ends up in a pig stall, eating what the pigs are eating, which as a Jewish, as a Jewish man was one of the highest disgraces he could experience. Pigs were unclean animals. He finds himself living and eating with them. 
He comes to the end of himself. God opens his eyes to the things he's done. He decides, I'm going to go back and be my dad's servant. It's better for them than it is for me right here. And when he goes, before he can even get close to his house, his dad comes, throws his arms around him, kisses him on the cheek, puts a ring on his hand, a robe on his back, sandals on his feet, which all represented power and honor and authority. He forgives his son. He throws a party. He brings him in as his son. He pours out grace. That young man was under so much condemnation, you couldn't even believe it. He had told his dad he was dead to him. He was living with pigs and eating with unclean. He had done everything wrong and that father lavished grace on him. Unmerited, undeserved favor for somebody under condemnation. That parable shows us who God is. We are the son. We run. We turn our backs on God at times. We go for the things of this world and think that they're better. And when that dad poured out grace on his son, what he was saying wasn't that there wasn't consequences or what he was saying is, I'm better than what you chose. What God says to us when he pours grace out on us, I'm better than what you're choosing. I love you the same no matter what. I accept you because of what my son did on the cross for you. That's the God that we serve. That's God our Father, the God of grace. Man, God is crying out from the pages of his book to dad saying, you need to put grace on display for your kids if you want them to pursue a relationship with me. If you want your children to love me and want to know me and want to be like me, they've got to know that you accept them and you approve of them and you love them at their best and worst. I'm going to close out the same way James has been closing every week and just offer hopefully some practical steps for dads in the room to walk away today and, and, and pour out and, and put on display this kind of grace. Man, the first thing you can do, say I'm proud, say I'm proud in spite of performance. Let me just tell you how impactful it was for me. And I didn't even realize it. You know, when I was in high school, my dad was like, I'm proud of you. And I didn't play. It was like, yeah, you have to say it. You're my dad. Like, I didn't play. Man, but I look back now. Man, you don't know how impactful it is to tell your kids, I am proud of you no matter what. I love you no matter what. Because here's the thing. They will disappoint you. You don't have to not be disappointed. They will upset you. You don't have to not be upset. But if your kids know that when you come, even when you come in disappointment and when you're upset and you come bearing discipline and consequence, if they know that you're proud of them no matter what, if they know that you love them and approve of them and accept them no matter what, man, that's where that discipline becomes grace-centered discipline that restores your children, puts them back on the path towards where they need to be going, where you want them to go and ultimately where God's calling them to. Man, another way you put that on display, be the first to forgive. Man, that father ran out and wrapped his son up before the kid probably even had a chance to say the words, I'm sorry. He threw a party before he knew his son was gonna say, dad, I'm coming. The son for all the dad knew by the time he threw his arms around him, he could have been coming back saying, hey, do you have any more money? Man, he came and he forgave him first. He showed him grace by forgiving him when he did not deserve it. It was unmerited, undeserved favor. Man, love your kids at their best and at their worst. Like I said just a second ago, if your kids know that you love them no matter what, if your kids know that you are proud of them no matter what, 
If your kids know that you accept them no matter what, it makes it so much easier to love them on the bad days. And it makes it so much easier for them to know your love on the bad days. Love them at their best. When they do well, celebrate, cheer, push them towards that. But man, when they mess up, when they fail, when they don't do what's right because they will, love them the same way. Love them the exact same way. Man, and the last thing, use your acceptance of your kids' dads as fuel, not a reward. Do not hold your acceptance hostage behind a wall of your kids living up to this dream you have in your head. Let God take the dream that you have for your kids and let him remove it and put his in. Let God's dream for your kids be the dream that you dream. Accept them no matter what. Use that to fuel them towards the reward of a relationship with you, which will ultimately fuel them towards desiring a relationship with God. Because you will put on display for your kids who God is. And we serve a good God who is full of grace and and as dads, we'll never live up to that. So my challenge to you as dads, look at the father of grace like that. Whether you had a do better dad, or whether you find yourself falling into the trap of being one, man, you've got to start with you. You've got to start with seeing dad, our father in heaven, God, as a God of grace, who loves and accepts and approves of you no matter what because of his son Jesus and what he did on the cross.